Welcome to the Food Therapy Podcast, where we talk honestly and openly about mental health, diet culture, BS, and food freedom. We're your co-hosts. I'm Brittany Modell, owner of Brittany Modell Nutrition and Wellness. And I'm Lauren Sharp, owner of Empower Method Nutrition. We are food freedom registered dietitians who have struggled with mental health, poor body image, and disordered eating behaviors. We are on a mission to dismantle diet culture, normalize conversations around mental health, and empower you as you heal your relationship with food and your body. Let's get talking. Welcome back to the Food Therapy Podcast. We are so excited to have Juliet James here. Juliet identifies as a queer pansexual fat babe who writes about mental health, eating disorders, and the social and emotional challenges of being fat in a thin-centric culture. You can find her work on Medium, and we're also going to post everything on the show notes. But Juliet, welcome. We are truly so excited to have you here on the podcast. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So just to provide some context, I think when I first reached out to you, I told you that one of my past clients had sent this article to me and said, I feel like this is something that you really want to read. And I read the article. It's titled, This is What Life is Really Like When You Weigh Over 400 Pounds. And I immediately reached out to you because I just feel like your voice is so needed. You know, Laura and I are both thin white dietitians, and we need people who don't look like us to educate others. And we want to also be the vehicle in which people can educate others. But it's so important to hear your story. And why don't you start us there? Tell us a bit about your story. Well, first of all, I just want to say that as a fat person, also white, I really appreciate when there are thin dietitians who want to hear from someone like me, because too often that is not the case. And especially where eating disorders are concerned, that's not the case. So that's particularly, it's refreshing and it's needed. So thank you for that, because it's just not common enough at this point. And it's also just important because it means that you're acknowledging the privilege that you both have. And that is something that is also very much needed. So my story, in a nutshell... I grew up, my dad was fat, very fat, and he was very hated by my mom's family, which they had really good reasons to not like him because he knocked up their 16-year-old daughter and he was 23. I mean, it was the 1970s, so that's not quite as scandalous, but still, it's not great, you know? But when my mom and him got married, he was immature, he was selfish, he was as many people are deeply flawed, especially when they're young, but he was not at all in a position to be a dad at that point. He really wasn't ready. And, you know, she had her own issues and, but my family's problems with him always centered around his weight. And it was never, you know, the actual issue. It was always like, oh, remember that time when he put all this butter on his mashed potatoes or he ate all the mashed potatoes at Thanksgiving or, there's the story of him breaking a couch and like they never mentioned the fact that the couch was ancient and that the leg had been falling off of that couch repeatedly for years at that point. So like, it was just, oh yeah, your fat dad, he broke the couch, ha ha ha. And in the next second, it was, you look just like your dad, you know? And it's like, how are you supposed to take that when you're a kid and you're hearing constantly that your father is this fat failure and you look just like him. So I didn't really start off with a great shot at a positive body image. 
I was always a bigger kid. I was always, you know, like the very chubby little kid. And I mean, not to like pat myself on the back or anything, but I was like adorable. I mean, my mom used to have people come up to her in, in the store because I had like the corkscrew curls, like the Shirley Temple curls. And they would be like, oh my God, her curls. And she would tell me about this. So like, and my grandmother, I mean, even with all of the things that she said bad about me, she would talk about how I was the prettiest baby she'd ever seen. And then she would, you know, talk about how babies are generally ugly, which I don't, personally agree with but you know she would talk about that but it was kind of like I peaked at infancy you know so I didn't really have very very uh much hope of getting any better apparently my parents separated when I was about six and they actually I wasn't even six and they and my mom moved in with my grandparents and her older sister and younger brothers still lived at home so it was a pretty crowded house but we were there and my aunt, her sister, she was the one who was probably the worst offender when it came to comments about my body size or my father's body size. My mom lost custody of us. She had substance abuse problems. And we went to live with my younger brother and I went to live with my grandparents. But my grandmother kind of let my aunt be the one in charge of us, in charge of managing our day-to-day stuff in a lot of respects. So the first thing my aunt did, and I was, I was eight and a half at the time was to put me on a diet and it was super, super strict. I felt hungry all the time. I felt unbelievably deprived. I felt super singled out. You know, she would tell the story. If you were to ask her, like she went above and beyond to make sure that I always had special treats and, you know, yeah, but you always made sure I knew that they were special and why I needed them. And it was like, it was a burden too. Like she had to make these special sugar-free pudding ice pops because I couldn't have the other ice pops like the, you know, like my brother, it was just a recipe for disaster. I mean, it was, it was inevitable that I was going to, at some point, find a way to get control and binge because I was hungry all the time. I just don't remember ever feeling like I was satisfied. And so when I got older and they started to leave me home alone, sometimes I would sneak food and I got really good at doing it in ways that would make it seem like it was somebody else or trying to figure out what would be the least obvious thing. So like if there's a box of donuts, for example, you know, there's exactly this many donuts. You don't want to take donuts because they will have counted them. And they did. She counted everything. She'd count things like it was ridiculous. And she was one of those people who could eat anything and never gain weight. And the truth of the matter is when I look back on it, she had all the same signs of an eating disorder mm. in many ways that I did. She just didn't gain weight <laughs> until she was um, a little older and she'd had a hysterectomy because of severe mm. endometriosis. And then she started gaining weight, but she, she just didn't really care. Like even when my grandmother would say stuff to her about her weight, she was just like, whatever, I don't care. Cause that's it's just who she is. For me, it was never that simple. I mean, I didn't care what people outside of the house would say, but what my family said that carried a lot of weight and that no pun intended. (laughs) And, um, you know, that would really negatively impact me for pretty much the rest of my life. It took me a really long time to fully appreciate how angry I was and how damaging it was, Mm -hmm. what they did to me, you know, what my aunt did to me directly, what my grandmother did to me somewhat directly, but more what she allowed to be done to me. Um, 
you know, and one of the things is that I was this crazy active kid. I hated phys ed. I hated running. I hated aerobics. I hated the stupid presidential fitness tests. Oh my God, those things are horrible. I really hope they don't do them anymore, but I have no idea. But I loved roller skating. I loved ice skating. I wanted so badly to take ice skating lessons. I wanted horseback riding lessons. I wanted... I mean, like when I talk about it, I remember how much those things cost because like I would research them. I would call places and find out and I would tell them and it would be like, oh no, you're too big to do that if you get smaller. So that was my family life. And that pretty much set me up for a lot of problems because my mom eventually regained custody of my brother and I um, after about three years. And, you know, she, I don't think had any way to really fully appreciate how strict my aunt had been with me and with my brother for different reasons, because that was when, that was in the eighties when the thing with sugar was that it made boys hyper, you know, kids in general, but especially boys. So he had ADHD and they would say, or actually, I don't really think he did. I think he had bad parenting, but that's another story. And I say that as someone who does actually have ADHD and didn't get diagnosed until I was an adult. Um, I think his problem was just bad parenting, but because of that, they wouldn't let him have sugar. So even though he was thin, when we got out of that environment, both of us binged, both Mm. of us went nuts with sugar and anything that we could get our hands on that for years we weren't allowed to have. First of all, like that sounds so incredibly painful and just hearing what you had to go through at such a young age and thinking and knowing that your body was somehow wrong and being, you know, I think like that's the hardest thing for children is, and I don't know what the intention was of your aunt, but most parents were like, oh, like I'm doing this for the child. I want to protect them. Even though we know it's really coming from a place of inner fat phobia or internalized fat phobia where they don't want their child to be in a larger body. And this just, you know, this idea that people don't understand body diversity, like even working with parents. And it's like, why is one child in a bigger body and one child in a smaller body? It's like, it's called body diversity, but I just, I'm holding so much space for you because it just sounds so incredibly painful. And I'm just, yeah. You had mentioned once your mom regained the custody you and your brother almost went into this like binge like mode. And so kind of like walk us through what happened as you got older. I know you mentioned, you know, in the article that we referenced earlier, there was a lot of restriction and over-exercise and yo-yo dieting. Because what I want to say is there is this misconception that when people are in larger bodies, they're lazy, they sit and eat donuts all day on the couch, that they don't care about their health. And, you know, again, it's, it's talking about the fat phobia in our society, but can you kind of walk our listeners through what you went through? Because what you went through was a lot. Yeah. Um, so my mom and her fiance, we eventually, when we first moved in with them, when she first got custody back, we were in a little apartment. Then we got into like a house that was much bigger. And um, at that point we had like a pantry and, you know, um, my brother and I, my mom worked nights. um, Well, evenings really. She worked like from like um, roughly like three to three to eight or something like that. She worked at a bar, tending bar and her fiance worked there in the mornings and he was like the cook in the bar. 
And so he would be the one who was kind of supervising us in the afternoons. Like he'd give us money to go and get um, frozen ice when the truck was going by and in the summers and stuff. But, uh, but he just wanted to come home and relax and he would go upstairs and watch TV in the room. And like my brother and I were basically unsupervised, which wasn't the best thing for two kids who had been deprived of food. And so we kind of would just wind up eating everything. Um, and I remember for a while before we had officially moved in with them, we started playing this game that I created where we would get like catalogs, like, you know, the, like the Christmas catalogs of food, like Swiss colony or something like that. And we would like make grabby hands at the things we wanted to eat. And the game was who could pick the most things or who would get the most things. And it was all because we weren't allowed any of those things any of the rest of the time. So we had this like fantasy world that we invented and it was like fun. And it, when I think about it now, I'm just like, my God, that is so messed up. Like it just shows you where our minds were at the time. And so it's not surprising. My mother's fiance used to get stuff from the bar he had friends that would sell him like, you know, big boxes of like, you know, snack cakes or whatever. And when we would find them, we would just wind up eating like the whole box and, you know, like an afternoon because we could for the first time ever. And so unfortunately their decision on how to handle it was based on me being the problem um, and not him because he was still thin at the time. Um, and I was gaining weight rapidly because I was also going through puberty and dealing with the development of PCOS, although I wouldn't know that for many years. And they put locks on the pantry and the refrigerator and the freezer. So once again, I had forced restriction and food scarcity and the feeling of being deprived and watched. And, you know, it was, and the feeling that I was, that I was you know, flawed, deeply, inherently flawed. Um, and I couldn't be trusted and I couldn't trust myself with food. And around the same time, my dad and my first stepmother were doing Herbalife, I think it was called. And so they talked my mom into buying it for me. And I don't remember if they wound up buying it, but they, you know, paid whatever their discounted rate was. And it was like my birthday present one year. And it was so disgusting. <laughs> And how old were you at this point? I was, I was probably 11 at the time. So maybe 12 by then. Actually, I, that was probably my 12th birthday. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was just not easy. And, and like I had friends who were, you know, many of my friends were the type of people who were thin and could eat whatever they want and not gain weight, which didn't make it any easier. <laughs> my brother was still thin, so nothing really was like on him, he didn't gain weight until he was in his teens. And then he started to put on weight and eventually also wound up fat. But yeah, it was, uh, it was really rough. And it was just another step in, you know, instead of recognizing that I had been restricted for all this time, and this is kind of what my body needed to sort of just get over it and like, let it go. It was more restriction, which just made it worse. Mm -hmm. So then it was anytime I had any money, you know, I would just try to go somewhere to get some food. And, you know, of course, what, what foods do you want the most the foods you're not allowed to have? And since those foods tend to be like sugary foods or high fat foods, those would be the foods I wanted the most because I was never allowed to just have them. Right. There's this diet when you're, what did this start? Eight years old, you said? 
Yeah, I was eight. And then the herbal life. And then what was the progression of these diets and, and where you are today? From that point, when I got into my like tweens and preteens, you know, that era area of uh, life where you're being bombarded by like the teen magazines and everything, that's when it sort of started to change because that's when, you know, I was getting to a size where it was hard for me to find clothes that were like, I mean, you think it's hard for a fat person to find clothes that are cute now? Try being a fat 12-year-old in the 80s, you know? Like, I had old lady dresses with big shoulder pads and stuff, you know? And so I was looking at, you know, thin models and celebrities, and, like, I had a major crush. I didn't recognize it as a crush on Alyssa Milano at the time. And, you know, and, and like, my crushes on on girls were always so complicated because it was, like, on the one hand they were, you know, they were like totally emotional crushes. But on the other hand, it was like, I was also sort of partially hating them almost because Mm. I wanted to be able to wear their clothes and I couldn't. And, and it sucked. So that's kind of when my own restriction set in and my own efforts to start like trying to manipulate my weight began to slowly evolve. And that sort of hit its peak when I was probably around like 14, 15 but the more I restricted, the more I would binge. And every time I would lose a little bit of weight, I would gain more weight afterwards because, you know, my body had already been through so much at that point. Like my metabolism had to already have been so screwed up and it didn't help that I, at that point had PCOS and didn't know it. I mean, I went, one time I went like nine months without a period when I was like 14. And in the beginning, I was the weird kid where my periods were immediately regular and then suddenly they were not and it was clear like when I look back I can see very clearly when the PCOS began because it was very clear that this is when the irregularity started and that also correlated with when I started to gain the most weight so I was gaining weight really really fast at that point anytime I wasn't actively restricting but even when I was actively restricting I was never losing very much weight I wound up in an eating disorder hospital when I was, uh, well, it was a psychiatric hospital with, I was on the eating disorder unit when I was 15. Um, and they didn't have a diagnosis for binge eating disorder then. And they diagnosed me with, um, non-purging bulimia, which I didn't even know was a thing at the time. And for a long time afterwards, once binge eating disorder became its own diagnosis, I thought, oh, that, you know, I was clearly, that was what I was supposed to have been diagnosed with. But what I realized later when I looked back on that time period is that, no, it's not because I was absolutely in a pattern of restrictive eating followed by binge eating, followed by restrictive eating, followed by binge eating. And that's, you know, pretty much classic non-purging bulimia. And the only reason it was non-purging is that no matter what I tried, I could not make myself vomit. And I tried everything. And when I was in the hospital, unfortunately, as I suspect is way too often the case for patients who are hospitalized, I heard quote unquote tricks that other patients would use because no matter how closely they supervise you, especially when you're all, you know, teenage girls for the most part, you're going to hear things. You pick up on other people's behaviors and patterns. And, you know, um, so, you know, I, I would hear them talk about things that they did and I'm like, Oh, I wonder if that works. So when I got out, I was determined, I was there for seven weeks and I was determined that when I got out, I was going to be, quote unquote, good, because I still saw it that way. Um, And um, 
What? But then I started to try, you know, those tricks and I still couldn't actually perch, which I'm immensely grateful for now. So I, I, I lucked out in the sense that my body mechanisms just didn't allow me to actually force myself to vomit. What brought you into the hospital? Uh, I had stopped going to school <laughs> and I stopped going to school because I was tormented on the bus, but my mom didn't have a car at the time. So she couldn't drive me to school and I wasn't getting on that bus. There was nothing in the world that was going to get me to go on that bus. So I stopped going to school. The school eventually got involved. If I had been a year older, I would probably have been able to manipulate my mother into just letting me quit school because you could not get me to go to school. There was nothing she could have done. I mean, she was a mess herself at the time with her addiction issues, but like, even if she hadn't been, she was not going to get me to go to school. I mean, maybe if she hadn't been, she would have recognized that I needed help and got me into therapy or something, but I'm not convinced that would have even mattered. And I'm not even hundred percent sure if I would have been willing to talk about it willingly without having been in the hospital about why I didn't want to get on the bus. And it wasn't school itself. I mean, the school itself wasn't great, but it wasn't school itself. It was the bus. And um, it just triggered every single anxiety that I had at the time. Um, um, and it was too stressful and I just couldn't handle it. So once the school got involved, they ordered a psychiatric evaluation. And that was kind of what led to the discovery of, oh, wait, you know, she has an eating disorder and she's suicidal and she probably really needs some help. <laughs> in the most part, in, in many respects, the hospital was a positive experience. And in a lot of respects, I was also very lucky, especially at that time, because although I was like, 326 pounds when I got to the hospital, my weight wasn't really a big topic for the people at the hospital. For the people from the school, it was a huge topic. But from the people who were working at the hospital, it didn't really come up a lot. Like I never felt like there was this, I mean, it was like there was this understanding that I was of course not supposed to be that big. I was supposed to get smaller, but it wasn't like a pressure situation. You know, I was allowed to not know my weight. I was allowed to turn around if I wanted to. Um, and, you know, that is not typical of a lot of inpatient hospitalizations, unfortunately, even today. So in that sense, I, I lucked out. Right. So you mentioned, like, in the article that I keep referencing, but you mentioned that traditional dieting never worked for you. And every single time you tried to tra traditionally diet, you gained weight. And I'm saying this because I think there are a lot of people who will say like, well, why doesn't someone just try to lose weight? Like they're clearly not trying. And it isn't for a lack of trying. It is the body fighting against going past a certain set point for the body. And so I'm curious, like how, like, how did you come to the fact where it's like, okay, traditional diet isn't working. And I know you mentioned seeking out a intuitive eating specialist. And tell me a bit about how you went from, okay, this isn't working. I have tried everything to let me see what intuitive eating is like. And um, intuitive eating was a total accident. Actually, I had no idea that it existed. I um, was about, I was 30, 31 at the time. And I had just had enough we had just left New York City, my husband and I, after 
me living there for about six and a half years. And in New York City, I don't think there's any way I would ever have been in a place where I could have done intuitive eating because there was so much pressure to be a certain size, to look a certain way. I just don't think I could ever have been in a place where I felt comfortable enough to just give up on it and to feel like, oh, I'm giving up on this dream of being thin. But I remember um, that fall after we moved here, which was 2006, I just felt broken. I had been doing all of this. I mean, I did the carbatic diet, the glycemic index diet, Atkins, um, sugar busters, Weight Watchers, you know, I mean, I did everything shy of like the ones that you have to pay for food just because they were things I could never actually afford to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, they just never worked. I would do them for a while. I mean, I had the most quote unquote success with Weight Watchers, but it was also the most emotionally destructive. So I have a deep, deep hatred <laughs> of that company and Noom is quickly building up to that, even though I've never done Noom because by the time Noom came around, I was no longer um, in that place. But Noom feels to me a lot like what Weight Watchers commercials felt like when they were still relevant, which really they're not as much as they wish they were anymore. I just felt broken. I, I, I remember like I went to the dietitian at my doctor's office because I felt like I couldn't do this anymore. But it was also like the idea that I could just opt out never occurred to me. Like I'm fat. I'm supposed to not be fat. I'm supposed to be thin. I'm supposed to figure out how to make that happen. I don't want to have surgery because I know all the problems that can come with that. And I don't know how to do this. So clearly I need to go to a dietitian. And I told her all of this and I made it very clear that, you know, I felt like I was broken and I couldn't do this anymore. And she basically put me on like, um, the, diabetes association diet where it's like you know you have exchanges and stuff and it was basically like weight watchers was before points to be honest because <laughs> you know i did weight watchers long enough that i remember it before points i did that for like a week and i was just like okay this is still a diet this is still the same kind of thing that i didn't want so i looked for a therapist and it was just the most freakish thing in the world that in my little mountain town there was this therapist who had a practice that had a name like I, it was something like be yourself and it was like that sounds kind of promising and I remember going in and um she was a very thin woman and I and I remember thinking immediately okay this is just I'm gonna get a diet this is gonna be some kind of like oh here there's this diet you haven't heard of yet because there's still one of those that exists in the world and you just need to try this one but then she brought out her copy of intuitive eating and she was like, this is what you need to do. You need to buy this book and you need to read it and we need to talk it out. And I was just like, wait, so you're not going to put me on a diet. And she just looked at me and she was like, no, that's the entire point of this is that dieting doesn't work. And the worst part about it is that if it hadn't come out of the mouth of a woman who was like probably a size four and who I found, you know, to be, societally acceptably small, I don't think I would have believed it. If it had come from someone who looked like me, I don't think I would have believed it. And I don't think I would have been able to trust it. And that's really sad. And that just speaks to the deep internalized 
stigma that I was carrying around with me. And that's something that, you know, now fat therapists and fat dietitians and fat specialists, they have to deal with that all the time. Their patients won't take them as seriously as they will as they will thin providers. And that's pretty screwed up, but that's how deep this goes. And so when I walked out of there, it was just like, I, I remember thinking like my life was just immediately different. It was just, I could not have been more emotionally ready for it. You know, I had everything I wanted in my life at that point. I had a job that I mostly loved. I was working with preschoolers, Um, I had just gotten like two back-to-back promotions in like three weeks. I was living in this absolutely beautiful place that I had always dreamed of living and never thought I would. And that was coming off the heels of having lived in New York City where I always dreamed of living and never thought I would. And I was married to this amazing man and we'd been together for a long time already by then. We'd been married for two years. We'd been together for seven years you know, we were getting to a place where we were ready to start trying to have kids. And like, it was just like, I had everything I wanted. So why was I still so insistent on being miserable and doing this thing that I had done for decades that had never done anything except make me fatter? Like the reality is if I had been left alone when I was a little kid and I was so active and I rode my bike and I was doing gymnastics and I danced in the basement to Madonna and, you know, I, if I had just been left alone and been encouraged to nurture those behaviors, I think about how different my life would have been. And while I like my life and I can't say that I would go back and change it at the same time it makes me angry. It makes me very angry. And that's the thing that I wish parents realized. Like you are taking your children's childhood and you are turning it upside down. And in the end, the odds are that you're going to make them fatter because that's what usually happens. But what is it like two thirds of people who diet end up regaining more weight than what they initially had gained. And we know like when people diet and the longer someone diets, it continuously drives up their natural set point. Right. Exactly. As well. Right. Which is what happened to me. I mean, um, my set point, um, kept getting higher and higher. And, you know, so eventually my body kind of settled at this point where I was consistently, I was winding up around like 380 pounds. And that would be where I would wind up. And once I got to that point when I was dieting, I could never get that far below it for years. The thinnest I was as an adult was like 328 pounds or something like that. And that was after a very, very long time of extreme restriction, doing Weight Watchers and exercising way more than was wise with the amount of food I was eating and drinking so much water that like, I, (laughs) because I worked in daycare, I couldn't ever just go to the bathroom. You always have to get someone to cover you when you work in daycare because there are required ratios that they have to meet. So I would be like standing there, like bouncing, holding myself, like, you know, like I have to go so badly because I'm drinking like 120 ounces of water a day. And it was ridiculous. But then I lost 20 pounds in a month doing that. And of course it wasn't sustainable. Like there was no hope of sustaining that ever. It was just impossible. But, um, you know, I did that for about some variation of that, not that extreme, but for like months I did that. Then I, you know, managed to get to my lowest weight. And then I had stopped dieting and I wasn't binging at the time, really. I wasn't really 
it wasn't like extreme. I just wasn't like being super restrictive anymore because, you know, I had moved to New York. I was with my boyfriend, now my husband. I was happy. I was busy. I had a job. I was trying to get back into school. And it was just like dieting was so time consuming. And I just felt like I didn't have the time for it. And I wound up gaining about 75 pounds in like nine months. And I really wasn't like, it was, it was one of the better points in my eating disorder phase. You know, like I really wasn't, I was happy. So I, even though like I had been food deprived and I'm sure that there was some amount of um, initial compensation in a lot of ways at that point, without even knowing it, to some extent, I was eating intuitively. I was eating things that I actually liked. I was eating till I was full. I wasn't ever feeling stuffed. I wasn't ever feeling, you know, like deprived, but then I gained all that weight. And I, of course, started the process all over again. <laughs> and when you say you started the process all over again, what do you mean specifically? I rejoined Weight Watchers. I started finding all the fad diets at the time. I bought all those books. Um, you know, when Weight Watchers didn't work that time, because, you know, every time I would rejoin Weight Watchers, that first week of weight loss would be lower and lower, which, you know, in retrospect was a clear sign that my body was saying, uh-uh, not going to do this anymore. If we're done, we've had enough, let's stop. But I just kept trying. And so then when Weight Watchers didn't work, I went to the fad diets and I went to the sugar busters or the carb addicts. And like, I don't even remember which one of them. There was one where it was like, you could eat however many carbs you wanted for one hour a night, which was basically like, Hey, here's an hour binge, hurry up, eat as much as you can. I mean, it was like the worst possible thing you could do to someone with an eating disorder history is tell them have an hour and eat whatever you want, but the rest of the day, you'd better restrict. I mean, it was like, could you possibly have done anything more to encourage binge eating than that? Um, and, you know, each of those diets, I'd lose a little bit of weight. I did Atkins for literally a weekend because I was ready to murder somebody. Um, that one was the only one that I didn't stick with for longer than a few days because I felt like I was going to murder my poor boyfriend at the time. I was just like, I can't do this. He was doing it. He was thrilled with it. He was happy. And then at some point along the way, he just decided like, I'm done. I've been doing this dieting crap since I was a kid too, to a lesser extent, but like he went to Weight Watchers as a kid and, you know, um, he, um, just was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And he just was like done, but you know, he was a man and he carries his weight very differently than I do. He carries his weight much more uniformly and he has, you know, a lot of muscle mass. And so like, he was able to get away with it more easily than, you know, a woman was, and especially in a city like New York. So it was, it was really hard. Um, and yeah, so finally, when I moved to Colorado, it was just like, I can't, I can't do it anymore. Um, but then I had my very serious injury in 2016. And I decided that I was going to have gastric sleeve surgery because not because I wanted to, not because I thought it was going to make me thin, but because I wasn't able to get an MRI at the time. And I had what they believed was a torn bicep, but it was basically like, okay, there are no imaging options available to me. So what am I going to do? And like, 
my doctor basically threw up his hands and was just like, you just got to give it some time. And if after 16 weeks, it's not better, it's as good as it's going to get. And so now I still have terrible muscle spasms in my right bicep when I do anything like, and it doesn't even have to be anything that extreme. Like sometimes just using a can opener, like a handheld can opener will trigger a bicep spasm and they're excruciating. And at the same time, my grandmother was going through cancer treatments. And I just remember thinking like, what if I get cancer and I can't get any of the scans that you need when you have cancer because they have really low weight limits, a lot of them. I mean, and some of them it's like, you know, like 220 pounds or something. I mean, there are men who are full grown men who couldn't get on those, you know, some also of those like 2021. How yeah. has no one figured that out? It really blows my mind. That's the thing that is so incredibly frustrating is that you know, here I am listening to this obesity epidemic hysteria for like decades now. And yet still there are no accommodations being made for people. And then when we have problems, we're blamed for them. And it's like, okay, A, you put all this stigma on us. You wage a war on us. The stress of that alone is enough to cause all of the problems that you say our fat bodies are causing. And you also then can't actually accommodate us. So when we have issues, we know, like I went one time for, I always mix them up, an EMG and an EEG, but it was the EMG, the one where they do like the little shocks in your body and they have to like stab you repeatedly and check your nerves. <laughs> and um, the table in that doctor's office was so wobbly. Like my husband is not a small man, but he's a lot smaller than I am. And, you know, he was like 300 pounds and he was sitting on the table so that I could have the chair in the office because the table was so wobbly that he was afraid to be on it. And it's like, you're thinking about it and you're like getting jolted. So you're going to jump. And the last thing you want is to be on a table that's wobbly. And even the doctor came in and was like, um, probably best if you sit on the chair. And I just wanted to be like, probably best if you guys get a new freaking table, one that can actually hold patients of larger sizes, like let alone a person who weighs like 250 pounds. Cause that table was that wobbly, you know, I and mean, it was ridiculous. So it's hard. And like, it's been an issue for me for a lot of things where it's like, Oh no, we can't do this. So we'll just do that. You know? And then it's like, okay, but if that doesn't work, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> and, it, right. and, and there's never an answer. Right. And it's, it's infuriating. And then, you know, you get blamed for it. And, and, you know, people who just are like, oh, well, just lose weight. You want somebody to accommodate you. Okay. First of all, as if I haven't tried to just lose weight 8,000 times. Second of all, what about right now? Because I'm not, even if it were possible for me to become a thin person and it's not for so many reasons, but even if it were possible, I'm not going to be a thin person for a very long time. So what happens to me in the meantime? I just get screwed. And what happens when those issues are things that interfere with your ability to even lose weight if you wanted to try, you know, like chronic pain or injuries or like a bicep tear, for example, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's, it's infuriating. And then, you know, you have doctors who want to treat you and they want to treat your weight and they, and they don't listen to you. And uh, on Medium, I have a piece called Dear Endocrinologist, Can You Please Not? And this is all about after my weight loss surgery, after I had gastric sleeve surgery, my thyroid went freaking nuts, like completely ballistic. I was supposed to be tested in three weeks because they were going to need to lower my, um, my medication, my thyroid replacement hormone. That was typically what happened. It happened within three weeks. Before you even really lost that much weight, you would have to have your medication lowered. I went in and my TSH levels 
were over 26 and they're supposed to be in the like two to four range ideally so or like there's they want them to be like no higher than four ideally they didn't know what the hell to think and i know what the problem is the problem is that i have hashimoto's disease and they chose not to believe that for whatever reason they chose to believe i was just hypothyroid i've tested positive for hashimoto's more than once but they just looked at it as regular hypothyroidism. But Hashimoto's doesn't behave like regular hypothyroidism because it's an autoimmune disease. My thyroid hasn't been stable since, and that was over three years ago. So I have had serious hair loss. I've got brittle nails. I've got like terrible ridges in my nails. I've had the worst depression of my adult life and possibly the worst depression of my entire life. And it's been going on for since uh, October of 2018, which was about six months or so after my surgery, I lost weight for the first four months. I lost weight, you know, rapidly like you're expected to. And then it just basically slowed to a crawl. And I lost a little more weight over the next like three months. And then suddenly in November of 2018, without any warning or any real reason, I gained 10 pounds in two weeks. And that shouldn't have happened after the surgery. In retrospect, I believe it was edema coming back in my stomach. And that's related to complications I've had from a hernia surgery. And it's probably from the hernia mesh. So that's my next medical challenge is to figure that out. Because now the mesh that they used at that time period has been recalled. And I really didn't want surgical mesh because my body, I can't even keep my ears pierced. So I knew that it was not going to go well. And it didn't from the get-go. I had cellulitis right afterwards. I wound up with all this edema. And so like my belly will sometimes swell and it'll feel like I've gained like, you know, 35 pounds just in my belly overnight. And it's extremely mm -hmm. painful. And, and it's hard because my belly was always the thing I was already the most self-conscious about. So it just made it worse. It also has caused serious back pain from that edema because it pulls on my back. But after my gastric sleeve surgery, I think there was like a temporary like drainage caused by that. And so I had about six months where my pain was so much better. And I thought maybe this was worth doing, even with the complications, because just having the freedom of being able to like walk, I went hiking in a rainforest. It was amazing. And then suddenly it all came back and I hadn't gained any weight yet. The pain started to come back. Then I started to gain weight. And in, and in the moment, all of my eating disorder thoughts and behaviors had kicked in. I had to force myself to eat dinner that night because I had gained 10 pounds and it was just, that's not possible. How could I have gained 10 pounds? And when I finally went to see the endocrinologist about my thyroid, I was explaining all of the problems, my hair falling out, my nails, my skin being super dry, being so, so depressed. And all she could talk about was how she was going to fix me and make it so that I started to lose weight again. And it was like, okay, but I don't expect to lose any more weight. I really don't. I've already started to gain weight at this point. How am I going to lose more weight? The weight loss would only make all the issues you just mentioned so much worse. It's not going to fix the issues. Yeah. Well, and the thing is that I, I went into surgery thinking that I could handle it because I had done IE for like 10 years and I hadn't had any major issues um, except briefly because I was diagnosed as being quote unquote pre-diabetic, which is kind of a bullshit diagnosis. But so I, you know, it's, it's pretty much like a bogus. It's, it's about getting 
pharmaceutical company is getting money, really, and more obesity hysteria. And when I was diagnosed as, di- as pre-diabetic, that kind of sent me into a tailspin a little bit because I went into sort of my obsessive compulsive behaviors of like, I checked out all these library books about diabetes and like how I should be eating. And that kind of caused some issues in my head. And I had to sort of recover from that. And I felt like I had, and then I had the gastric sleeve surgery and I thought I was going to be fine. I didn't think it was going to be a problem. I didn't want to be like, I wasn't going into it thinking I'm going to be thin. I called my surgeon out on his bullshit prediction of, Oh, we'll get you to 240 pounds. And I just looked at him and I'm like, Dude, I've been over 300 pounds since I was 15. Seriously, you really think that's a reasonable thing to say to me? Come on. 240 pounds, by the way, was lower than the average percentage of body weight you can expect to lose for a normal person. And I clearly wasn't normal in so many respects, you know, in terms of like, you know, how long I had dieted, how screwed up my metabolism was, my thyroid issues, all of that, PCOS. And so interestingly enough, he just kind of sidestepped that. But the day of my surgery, he revised that best case scenario of 300 pounds. And I was just like, "Uh uh-huh, that's interesting. Still unrealistic, I think, but interesting. Mm -hmm. And I really thought that I was going to wind up at like 380. And I wound up at like 397. And that's pretty much within that range. And that was as low as it ever got. And then I started gaining weight from the edema. And then I just gained some more weight and I, I have no idea now what I weighed. I finally made myself break up with the scale again last May because I realized like it was just so unhealthy for me and it took me a longer time to realize it than I wished it had. And it was pretty much immediate because the very first time I went to get weight after the surgery, I hadn't researched anything like how much weight loss should you expect in the first week or the first couple of weeks. And I got weight and I thought, that's not that much more than I lost like in my best Weight Watchers weeks. What the hell? Like I went through this for that. And I, and I remember being mad and I was telling myself that it wasn't about the number. It was about the process and, but it was about the number. I was already getting caught up with the numbers because it's seductive. It's, you know, when you've been told all your life, you need to be smaller and you're getting smaller for some reason, it can be seductive, even if it's not intentional, which obviously, you know, people would be like, okay, but you had weight loss surgery. Yes, I had weight loss surgery, but my goal wasn't to be thin. It was just to be able to get a damn MRI, Mm -hmm. you know? So it it didn't like, yes, it was intentional, but it also didn't feel like it was intentional. And that sounds so strange, but it's true. And so it, but it, it did, it, it got me. And I, it took me a while to realize how much it was affecting me. And then I finally was just like, I'm done. I I can't do this anymore. I can't get weight anymore. It's not good for me. I'm not doing it unless I absolutely have a reason to. And the only reasons that would be, would be like anesthetic purposes or, you know, for certain medications maybe, but I wouldn't even let them tell me at this point, I would ask them not to put it in my chart because I don't want to know because it's just too toxic for me. Yeah. And it definitely changes the mindset for everyone, depending on the number that they see. So where would you say today you are when it comes to your body and food and just everything that you've been through up until this point? Like, and you don't have to have like a finite answer, but like, what what would you say you are? Like, where are you today? In a lot of ways today, I hate food. I hate having to eat because one of the things I developed from The surgery, I believe, was burning mouth syndrome. And I think that's because of my thyroid dysfunction. And I wrote about that on HuffPost, so people can go read it if they want. But 
it's horrible. It makes food taste weird. It makes water taste weird. Water tastes like soap. So I can't drink plain water. Everything I drink has to be flavored somehow. And like, so I, I have like one flavor of crystal light that I like, and that's it. And that's what I drink exclusively almost. Sometimes I'll drink like a diet peach snapple iced tea. And that's not because it's diet. That's because from being put on a diet when I was such a little kid, I was not allowed to have sugar beverages. And I just got used to the taste. And when I drink things that are sugar sweetened, they taste weird and they taste mm-hmm. too intense. So I don't generally like them. So it's just one of those habits that kind of never went away. And I hate buying anything that even has the word diet on it. Like I just hate it, but it's what I like to drink. So I buy it because, you know, whatever. I drink almost entirely crystal light, cherry pomegranate crystal light to be specific, which gives me lots of red teeth. So that's always fun. I always have to like check my mouth before I like go anywhere because it sticks to your teeth and it makes them red and it's gross. Mm -hmm. And so this condition has made eating even harder. And I have had IBS since I was a teenager. It runs in my family. Pretty much everyone on my mother's side has stomach problems and they all seem to develop when you're a teenager. So I've had issues with like fruits and vegetables since I was a teenager. Um, and that always made everything harder too, because I was eating in a way that made me feel physically sick all the time when I was dieting. Um, and, and because of that, like I would start to try to find things that I could eat that were not going to make me feel sick. So like, you know, everyone's always like, Oh, you're dieting. You're so healthy. Yeah. No, I'm eating like 20 rice crispy treats a week because they're two points each. And I can do that. And why do I still remember that? Like, I mean, I don't know what they are now, but like at the time, it's like, why? Why do those stupid things stick in my brain? What could I do with all the brain space if I could get rid of like point counts, you know, like all these years later, it's still in your head and that's how toxic it is. But yeah, so it's just, it's so hard because now it's like between the gastric sleeve surgery, my already existing IBS, the burning mouth syndrome, my eating disorder, brain issues, it's a cluster you know, and I, and I just, I go to meals. It's like, you know, my husband will be like, okay, it's, it's five 30, which is when we normally eat dinner. It's time to have dinner. And I'm just like, ugh, fine. And a lot of times I don't even eat when it's a meal time. Like I have to wait until I actually have like a serious sense of hunger because I just can't be bothered. Mm-hmm. It's just so stressful. It's like, I never know. Yesterday I made myself like I had deli chicken, like deli meat chicken. And I made a cheese sandwich with tomato and, you know, mayonnaise. The chicken tasted like scallops. (laughs) I I had an issue a couple of months ago where ham with mayonnaise tasted like fish. So I couldn't eat ham for a while. Uh, And now the chicken tasted like scallops. And I like scallops, but not when I think I'm eating chicken. (laughs) Right. Right. If if you're eating scallops, you enjoy scallops. Yeah, exactly. But not when I'm eating a chicken salad or a chicken sandwich, even I don't want to taste scallops. So yeah, I, I wound up taking all the chicken off and giving it to my dog and, uh, and chicken and I are, are not on great terms anyway, because of the surgery, because whenever I try to eat like a chicken breast or something like that, it's very challenging. It can sit in my stomach. It'll sit in my chest and it is excruciatingly mm. painful so painful. And so I don't have the the best relationship with chicken anyway. 
<laughs> so that didn't help. I still can't really eat beef. I haven't been able to since my surgery. They tell you to buy sugar-free gelatin to eat after the surgery, but what they don't tell you is that almost nobody can tolerate it after the surgery. So when I was in the hospital, they were giving me it and I said something to the nurse about, oh no, that's not sitting well. And she's like, yeah, it never does. And I was just like, oh, so you know this, but the doctors don't tell you this. So at home, I had like tons of sugar-free jello that I wound up not being able to eat. Right. And, um, and that's the problem. You don't know, you don't have any way to know how your stomach is going to react, how your body is going to react, what's going to happen. And once you've done it, you can't undo it. So you just have to live with it. And I'm more than three years out and like, I'm still having issues with certain foods. And sometimes I have issues with foods that I didn't have issues with. Like suddenly I develop an issue. So it's very frustrating and it has made food not a lot of fun for the most part. And a lot of the things that are easiest to eat are ironically the things that people would say, oh, you shouldn't be eating. So it's like, you know, uh, and, and my best friend, Vanessa had the same surgery and she will tell you the exact same thing. She will tell you that she has the same experience that she can eat a lot of certain types of foods that, you know, are demonized foods, but she can't eat a lot of like a piece of chicken and without right. feeling sick. Right. And it's just like, what, what is the point? Like this is supposed to make you quote unquote healthier. No, not at all. Not even slightly, not physically, not emotionally. It has not done that for me. And I know it hasn't done it for her. And I know plenty of other people for whom it has not worked out that way. Well, thank you for providing that insight because I do think, you know, people see it as like a fix all when there are so many other issues that can be associated with it. Yeah. So Juliet, where could people find you? I have a website that doesn't have a lot on it, but it does link to all of my social media. It's just IamJulietJames.com. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty much I am Juliet James on most social media, on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok, which I'm not very active on yet. <laughs> and I say yet as if that might change, but I don't know that it will. Um, <laughs> and I have a novel that I wrote that I'm hoping to publish at some point, but I'm still not happy with it. (laughs) I wrote it in um, 2018. I wrote it in a month for National Novel Writing Month. And it is about a fat 20 something year old in the nineties. So it's not even a little autobiographical or anything. Uh, Autobiographical. Actually what it's called is Cravings, a mostly fictional memoir. So it's a little bit based on my life, but not, not a lot. Well, people have to follow you. So they'll be in the loop and know. Yes. When it, when <laughs> yeah. Eventually out. I will finish it. I will edit it. I will get it to the point that I like it and I will actually get it published somehow. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much and go follow Juliet. Go look at the show notes. We'll have everything there. And we just want to thank you again for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Food Therapy. If you enjoyed what you heard and want to support our podcast, please subscribe, hit download, and share it with your community. We value your feedback. If you feel inspired, please leave a review. Let us know what you've learned and what you would like to hear next. All information about this episode will be linked in our show notes. New episodes of Food Therapy come out every Sunday, but you can stay connected with Food Therapy all week long by following us on Instagram at Food Therapy Pod. As a disclaimer, this podcast should not replace therapy or working with a registered dietitian. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.